But the fuckers say we can't. Because you're a girl and I'm a girl that released something close to the most we can hope for is an unsilver union in Vermont. I want church bells. I want rosary beads. I want Jesus on his knees. I want to walk down the aisle and the patriarchy smile. That's not true. But I do want to spend my life with you. And I want to know 50 years from now when you're in a hospital room getting ready to die, when visiting hours with family members only, I want to know they'll let me in to say goodbye. Because I've been 50 years memorizing the way the lines beneath your eyes form rivers when you cry and have held my hand like an ocean at your cheek saying, baby, flow to me. Because 50 years I've watched you grow with me. 50 years of you never letting go of me through nightmares and dreams and everything in between. From the day I said, buy me a ring. Buy me a ring that will turn my finger green so I can imagine our love is a forest. I want to get lost in you. And I swear, I grew like a wildflower every hour of the 50 years I was with you. And that's not to say we didn't have bad days. Like the day you said, that checkout clerk was so sweet. And I said, I'd like to eat that checkout clerk. And you said, honey, that's not funny. And I said, baby, maybe you could take a fucking joke every now and then. So I slept on the couch that night. <laughs> and when morning came, you were laughing. Yeah, there were times we were both half in and half out the door. But I never needed more than the stars on your skin to lead me home for 50 years. You were my favorite poem. And I'd read you every night knowing I might never understand every word. But that was okay. Because the lines of you were the closest thing to holy I had ever heard. You'd say, this kind of love has to be a verb. We are paint on a slick canvas. It's going to take a whole lot to stick. But if we do, we'll be a masterpiece. And we were. From the beginning, living in towns that frowned at our hand-holding, folding their stairs like hate notes into our pockets who would pretend they weren't there. You said fear was only a verb if you let it be. Don't you dare let go of my hand. That was my favorite line. That in a time when we saw two boys kissing on the street in Kansas, and we both broke down crying because it was Kansas. And you said, what are the chances of seeing anything but corn in Kansas? <laughs> born again that day. I cut your cord and you cut mine, and the cords of time played like a concerto of hope, like we could feel the rope unwind, the noose of hate loosening, loosening from years of people like you aren't welcome here, people like you cannot work here, people like you cannot adopt. So we had lots of cats and dogs and once even a couple of monkeys. You talked to sing, hey, hey, with a monkey. <laughs> you were crazy like that. And I was so crazy about you and nights you couldn't sleep. I'd lay awake for hours counting sheep for you. And you would rewrite the rhythm of my heartbeat with the way you held me in the morning, resting your head on my chest, I swear. My breath turned silver the day your hair did. Like I swore marigolds grew in the folds of my eyelids the first time I saw you. And they bloomed the first time I watched you dance to the tune of our kitchen kettle in our living room. In a world that could have left us hard as metal, we were soft as nostalgia together. For 50 years, we feathered wings too wide to be prey. And we flew through days strong and days as fragile as sandcastles at high tide. You would fold your love into an origami firefly and throw it through my passageways till all my hidden chambers were lit with lanterns. Now every trap door of every pore my heart is open because of you because of us so I do I do I do I want to be in that room with you when visiting hours with family members only I want to know they'll let me in I want to know they'll let me hold you while I sing I'm so in love with you baby I'm so in love with you Dang a dang dang, dingy dong ding, good bye. So that was Andrea Gibson. She is a uh, poetress. Um, 
She has a website, www.andreagibson.org, A-N-D-R-E-A-G-I-B-S-O-N. Um, check her out. She's pretty cool. That poem was called I Do. Uh, so welcome to uh, the LGBTQ Psyche podcast. This episode is episode number two, and we're going to be talking about assimilation versus liberation. Um, a little note on the title of the podcast. We have obviously made a change from the intersection to LGBTQ Psyche podcast. Um, there were a lot of intersection podcasts out there, and he wanted to be different, obviously. So um, we've come up with a different title. I think it I think it works better and speaks more to what we're focused on anyway. Yeah. Helps us to own the identities a little bit more, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, given that part of the goals of the podcast is to continue to expose ourselves and listeners to LGBT affirmative and also um, LGBTQ centeredness. Um, really um, having more of a mind towards that our psychologies are fundamentally oriented in a, in a lesbian and a gay and a bi trans queer way, um, depending on how we identify consciously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of that, that helps us to orient ourselves more towards the, the goals. So I think it's a good name change. Which means our contact info has changed. Um, so feel free to email us at lgbtqpsychepodcast at yahoo.com. Visit us on Podbean, lgbtqpsychepodcast.podbean.com. We have a new website, www.lgbtqpsyche.wordpress.com. Or search for us on Facebook or all of the above. And I'm Tyler Baker Wilkinson. And, and I'm Morgan Fitzgibbon. Um, yay. Yay. Um, I'll, do you want to give a little bit of a reintroduction of who you are for, in case people are joining us for the first time? Sure. Um, I am a, I'm a gay man. Um, I'm a cisgendered male. I'm a white male. Um, I am, uh, in a long-term monogamous relationship with my uh, husband. We're legally married in California, which is, we'll get into kind of Morgan and I both, uh, our feelings about being married, um, as it relates to the topic at hand. Um, I'm a marriage and family therapist intern, uh, sort of working towards licensure. I'm not, I'm not, um, practicing right now. Um, I'm an HIV STD counselor at the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center, um, that occupies a lot of my time. Very happy to be co-hosting with Morgan, keep myself oriented, um, on the material. I'm also somewhat of a avid and on the flip side, an ambivalent inner worker, um, always trying to be more and more gay centered and struggle with what that means and all of the defenses that come up around that for me. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a brief reintroduction to me. And, uh, I'm Morgan Fitzgibbon again. I, um, am a white, 
cisgendered female living in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I am recently married um, and we'll be talking about that more as the episode goes on. Um, queer identified bisexual woman. Uh, I have a, I'm a marriage and family therapy intern and I have a private practice here in Portland. Uh, I also do some workshops and lectures on LGBT affirmative therapy. Um, and I, I love having this opportunity to co-host with Tyler. It keeps me grounded and focused and, um, my own inner work, which can be a challenge because there, there, there aren't enough of us up here. So uh, I'm glad to stay connected to the material. Thank you so much again, Elijah, for coming on um, and adding to this, this conversation. It's a really, I think, important topic um, and um, something we should be considering, I think, a lot more, um, especially as we're trying to get more and more gay-centered and um, in our own psychology. How, how are we assimilating with the, the group think and the, the heterosexist brainwashing that, that continues to affect us? Um, and I think that's largely what you know, we want to talk about in this episode is, you know, uh, what does all this mean? Um, and, then, and then ending up. It was interesting that we, ha- we decided to do this interview in this episode at the time we did, um, which happened to be exactly a week after my wedding. Um, and I have to say, I've been hesitant to uh, be completely open about the status of my relationship and about the fact that I, I chose to have a wedding. Um, you know, I have a lot of fears come up that people won't take me seriously then as, um, as a queer person to begin with, since I married a cisgender man, um, as, uh, an LGBTQ activist, because I chose to do something that can be interpreted as very simulationist. Um, and so to put all that out there on, It's, it was intimidating to me. But um, what, what do you think was intimidating about it, Morgan? Uh, the opportunity. I, I, the, I think it's the fear that I'll be judged, for one thing. And also, um, that these are, those are like my, some of my deepest insecurities as far as my queer identity goes. And so I'm putting all those out there, not just, not to, not just anybody, but in a, in a, in a venue that affects um, who I am professionally. Mm. And, and so that, that to me was scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but in conversations with you, I've been very, um, moved by your strong effort to be open, even in things that are, are challenging to be open about. And so I, I, 
want to be better about doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. I mean, it's, yeah, you have to deal with all the feelings that come up when you make yourself vulnerable to that. I mean, I'm interested, I'm interested in, um, the, what you're saying about, um, feeling, feeling judged for marrying a cisgendered male. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about, you know, what, what does that mean? What, um, you know, who, who will judge you? Who do you imagine would judge you? Um, yeah, I mean, it has been somewhat, um, a secret to, to me too, because we don't, we don't necessarily even talk much about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't m- know much about, um, legend, your now husband. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, to a certain, I'm, I, they're part of it's biphobia, my own internalized biphobia. And part of it, on the other hand, or maybe it's, same time is a desire to not become invisible uh-huh. as a queer identified person because I'm in a opposite gender relationship, uh-huh. you know? um, especially now as a woman, a cisgendered woman married to a cisgendered man, it would be extremely easy for me to go out into the world and never be visible or recognized as a queer person and that feels horrible to me so I think sometimes I keep it I don't talk about it because I don't want to lose that part of my identity that's really important to me so you don't talk about it right which probably isn't great (laughs) (laughs) uh, what what what's an alternative if that's not great. The alternative is what I'm I mean, I know I'm, and... I'm, I'm like interviewing you a little bit about it, but like, like we'd mentioned, you know, we haven't really talked much about this. Uh-huh. No, I'm glad you are. Uh, I think the alternative is what I'm, what I'm trying to do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of a week and a half into my marriage, I, that's kind of been my focus in talking about it. And even, um, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about the process that I went through making that decision and then what that looked like. Uh-huh. Um, because, you know, it wasn't, this isn't something I accidentally fell into, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was the one who proposed, so it was my idea. And before it was my idea to go through with it, I had a, to do a lot of thinking about what that meant. Uh-huh. Um, and I had really mixed feelings about it, not just because of my identity, but because I have a place in, of privilege, um, simply mm. because my partner's legally recognized as a male, right? Uh, you know, so that means that we're allowed to go request a marriage license. And I had really mixed feelings about taking advantage of that privilege. Um, and also all the parts of what that meant for me is, you know, a queer identified person and uh, LGBTQ activist. And, you know, was I just kind of tossing that aside to take advantage of this privilege? And it wasn't, things are never as simple when you start thinking hard about them. (laughs) It's really frustrating. Yeah. When Um, you think about things from um, the multidimensional, you know, yeah. 
because as you say that, I'm thinking about you know as a as a bisexual woman, um, a queer bisexual woman, as you said earlier, like you know, uh, here you are, and you you find yourself in love with uh, legend and want to share your life with him, and you're able to do that in a legally recognized way um, that takes a lot of the headache away of trying to figure it out in some other way um, to achieve those same rights. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I'm thinking about you, while, while, you know, the, while you're able to do that with him, should, should, um, should you have fallen in love with a woman, you wouldn't have been able to. So at the Mm -hmm. same time you are, I guess, what, it's not, I don't know, at the same time it feels you're you're equally discriminated against by the institution that you're using to unionize you and your you know cisgendered male partner right and so it's inter- so it's such a double the two things to hold there you know uh-huh yeah the- that was definitely on my mind like the last person i was in a relationship with i couldn't have married mm-hmm. um and Interestingly enough, Oregon um, has legally recognized domestic partnership. And so that was one of the first things I looked into. And um, being in a relationship with Legend, we can't have a domestic partnership because we're not the same gender. Oh, really? Yes. So it was kind of like, no matter who I choose to be in a relationship with, I can't have you know, I, my options aren't open, basically. <laughs> yeah, someone else is still defining its validity. Yep, yep, yep. That's so interesting. I don't think it's that way in California. I think anybody can have a domestic partnership in California. Which makes much more sense to me. I was really surprised by that. Yeah. Um. So, in thinking about the decision... And knowing that we can't have a domestic partnership, it, it would ha- it's it's basically legal marriage or a not legally recognized relationship. And the two things that it came down to for me was that um, I wanted to make a long-term commitment to my partner and my relationship that was witnessed by our community. And... Um, I wanted the I wanted a legally recognized partnership to protect our financial future and mm-hmm. basically take advantage of some of those privileges that other people in power are allowed to have. Um, and so that what it came down to then was that it, we, it was a marriage, it was a wedding. So um, in order to sort of, Basically, uh, I made, we made a very strong effort to keep our marriage ceremony true to, true to our relationship, which I view as a queer relationship, and our politics. Um, because to me, if we were going to participate in this really heteronormative institution. Patriarchal. Um, patriarchal institution, yeah. Um, in order to receive these economic privileges... I wanted to do it on our own terms, and that meant, like, really 
swearing the fuck out of our, <laughs> our <laughs> wedding ceremony and our marriage. Yeah. Um, so I had our officiant start the ceremony off by reciting the defini- definition of marriage from the Goodridge versus Department of Health um, Massachusetts Supreme Court decision that made marriage gay marriage legal in Massachusetts. Um, he's taking my last name. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I... That'll be interesting to see, um, how, um, that, how that, um, works out with him. I know I had a lot of problems because Jarrett and I combined our names. And, um, when I would, you know, send it into the car leaser or the, um credit cards or whatever I, I had some pushback like wait you're a man and you got married and you're changing your name you can't do that well i know his dad was really not happy about it oh yeah yeah and really his reasoning just comes down to misogyny um <laughs> you know he wasn't able to say that but basically that was the reason i love that he's taking your name that feels so um uh, well, it's literally matrilineal, but it feels very woman-centered. Yeah. Um, we talked briefly about hyphenating or something like that, but <laughs> for one thing, my last name's so fucking long that to hyphenate it would be ridiculous, yeah. but, um, <laughs> this just felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. And, and it does kind of turn everything on its ear, which is awesome. Um... And in in Oregon, despite the fact that we can't have a domestic partnership, he can change his last name. Either partner can change their last name or both. Um, you know, just just by way of getting married. I know in some places men can't change their last name just because they get married. Only women have that privilege, which mm, that privilege. Yeah, if you want to call it that. Right. Basically, I chose a very sp- i i very specifically chose to read a monologue from the movie Chasing Amy in our wedding ceremony. I don't know if you've seen that, but uh I love that movie. Have you seen that movie? I have not. Well, the movie is it's a Kevin Smith movie and it's about um Ben Affleck basically falls in love with this woman who's a lesbian. And at some point, um, she decides to have a relationship with him. And there's this really beautiful monologue where she explains why, despite identifying as a lesbian, she chose to have a relationship with him. And, um, you know, it was, it, it perfectly fits our relationship, which is why I chose to include it. Um, I also chose to include it because I wanted to make a very specific point about the fact that this was not a heterosexual relationship. Uh, And I realized that by doing that, um, it made Legend's parents uncomfortable. Uh (laughs) And while my specific intention wasn't to make anyone uncomfortable, that in itself felt like an important act because I was being true to who I was and I wasn't hiding what 
it could have easily become like a ceremonial erasing of my queer identity right there. Right. And, and instead, like I made a very big point of saying, you know, this is all of who I am. Right. I were this, were I there marrying a woman that would have been more present. And so I wanted to make sure not, not that my identity, well, my identity would be more present, but also I imagine that uh, most likely it, it wouldn't have been, it's not always as accepted is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So there's a possibility that were my partner, a woman, her parents might not have been happy with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wanted to make sure that that same piece of my identity, whether accepted or not was present. So. Rock on. Yeah. And what was funny to me was I'm, I I specifically said at the beginning, this is what this is what I'm reading. I didn't want anybody to interpret it as my own words because it wasn't. Um, but I had it. First of all, that brought the most tears out of anything in the entire ceremony from everybody that was there. And also I had people say to me afterward, I completely forgot halfway through that you didn't write that. Uh, it really spoke to. To how you feel and represent yeah. yourself. Yeah. So go watch the movie. It's a great movie. Okay. <laughs> um, can I ask how, how how does legend identify? Legend identifies as queer. Okay. Um, he has only had relationships with women. But that doesn't mean that he's not open to seeing men. He hasn't fat his his I his thoughts are he's not he hasn't yet met a man that he wanted to have a relationship with, but that doesn't mean it won't happen, which is why he chooses to identify as queer. Um so it's a political statement, I think, for him. Huh. So uh, um uh queer identified mostly heterosexual male. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well that's pretty cool. I mean I think that's probably the allied ship that um i'm looking for at least you know i i appreciate that yeah yeah and you know then when we come down to it gender identity is something totally different i mean there there are aspects of his personality that are so much more feminine than mine <laughs> uh-huh. um which is which is part of what i really love about him i mean the day the when I met him, he was frolicking around in a skirt, which I found really adorable. Um, so, you know, he's just, he's just, yeah. I make, I try to make an effort not to get sucked into justifying my relationship with him by saying, like, he's not your average heterosexual guy. But there's also the fact that he's not your average heterosexual guy. So, um, you know, we're, we, we, um, you know, we're talking about assimilation versus liberation. I think what maybe you're speaking to is liberating the queer part of yourself, even when theoretically you're entering into something that could be considered very assimilationist, but you're also trying to kind of maybe bridge the two of them by feeling, you know, that you're you're still going to own your queerness, your bisexuality <clears throat> in relationship 
to him and and through the ritual of marriage um because i think you you were speaking to and aware that this is kind of the bind of many bisexual people um you're gay in the gay community you're straight in the straight community and there's really a hard time bridging bridging that because you don't identify as heterosexual and you don't identify as gay or lesbian you know you are in fact bisexual which was a really hard thing to come to well yeah because you you're not going to get much mirroring or um help with that right right and so i i will say though that because i do have this little bit of extra privilege being in a relationship with a cisgendered man i i wanted to take the opportunity then to make marriage as queer as I possibly could. Yeah, and I, um, we were talking with, in our interview with Elijah, about, you know, um, many LGBT people, um, you know, the push for marriage equality, marriage equality, marriage equality, and you hear a lot of, like, the opponents you know, saying they're trying to change the definition of marriage that's been around for thousands of years. And, you know, the, I don't think our goal is to really debate point by point that kind of nonsense, because you could easily, you know, go back thousands of years looking at marriage and see how it's it's been very queer and it's been very, also very fucked up at times. And, you know, so we won't go into all that. But you hear you do hear a lot of gay people replying to that sort of argument with the argument that you know no we're just trying to um, we're not trying to change the institution of marriage we're just trying to have the same rights as everyone else and you know you hear a lot of same 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 we're the same as you we just want the rights and and I kind of take the perspective more that. You know, like I said with Elijah, that, um, you know, I, I am trying to change the institution of marriage. I think it needs to be changed. I think it should be more queer. I think it should be more gay. Um, I think we should be able to define our relationships and our sexual lives however we want to, um, however we express that. Um, you know, I think, you know, I know people who live next door to each other but not together there's people that are monogamous polyamorous you know there's i think it i think the system must be bucked around marriage that there's not one way um and i know that for me before i really was initiated into psychology my my background was much more sociological um um and I think when I met Jarrett and we got married, I was still very enmeshed with his family and my family. And just, I, I didn't have a very individual idea about what marriage was um, for me. And I think I ended up probably just acting out, played out roles. Um, you know, Jarrett. Jarrett worked more than I did, made more money than I did, so I found myself playing this wifely, suburban whatever. I was like the soccer mom without 
you know, soccer or minivan or children or anything, but, you know, like, so I ended up just kind of playing out these very heterosexist roles. Sounds like a dependent role. It, yeah, a def- definitely a dependent role. Which traditionally has been the wife role. Right. Right. So, so it's kind of this 19 kids and the minivan that t- makes total sense. Yeah, it's like this 1950s idea about power dynamics and who does what and the division of labor in the household, things like that. Um, and that's been really hard. Uh, it has been really hard, but um, you know, as Jarrett and I have both developed in our own understanding of ourselves and. Um, gotten more and more into our own inner work i think we've we've been more at an equality based partnership where regardless of funding or things like that um or roles we can approach things more on uh on an equal basis and getting more into our psychology where we're able to challenge each other um that you know that's a true expression of love and support is to be able to challenge each other with our own bullshit, mm-hmm. with our own psychology and our issues and how we play that out and are violent towards each other. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that evolution because I, I, I think that's part of the, um, problem with not having any sort of model of how to be, gay how to be in a gay relationship there's no model for it so you end up you know and that that may be kind of the core of this you know assimilation that can be very 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 homophobic because you end up playing out these heterosexist roles that have been crammed down your throat and you lose your gayness you lose your gay centeredness you know, being gay had nothing to do with that old uh, that that early role playing of mine. I can justify and and say, well, the fact that I'm a gay man with the apron, baking the cookies in the kitchen, and cleaning the house, and honey, your home kind of bullshit. Um, because I'm a gay man, I'm you know taking ownership of that and making it gay and. Yeah, but more so I'm just playing out this heterosexist idea, mm-hmm. you know. And it's still very patriarchal and heteronormative. Right. In its own way. Yeah. You um you were you have written here the the herd mentality, and I was wondering if that's that's something you could elaborate on. Yeah. How definitely. that relates. Um, so I was re- listening to a recent interview on Freakonomics Radio, which is a different podcast, um, about the herd mentality. And they interviewed um, Robert Cialdini, who's the Emeritus Professor of Psychology and Marketing at Arizona State University. Um, and he studies the power of social norms. And it his interview really struck me because um, I was thinking about assimilation and I was thinking about how um, in one way in a big way the LGBTQ community really prides itself on not assimilating on being different on being gay and um, 
kind of not fitting into traditional heteronormative societal norms. Um, and yet how easy it is to also then want to call equality looking like your neighbor or, you know, having equal marriage rights or having the ability to join the military. Um, and I was kind of trying to understand where, you know, where that comes from. And um, his, his interview gave me some really interesting things to think about because basically, and I want to quote him here because uh, I thought it was really powerful what he said. So he, he's done a lot of studies and written some books on, on the power of social norms. And what he says is, uh, we seem to under-recognize what those around us are doing, how, how what those are around us are doing powerfully influences what we do next, even though we tend to think of ourselves as freestanding entities immune to the blandishments of information and evidence from those around us. No, we're being powerfully influenced by what those are doing, those around us are doing, because people don't believe that these kind of motives affect them powerfully when they get into positions of developing programs to create pro-social behavior. They don't think of this one because they think this wouldn't work on me. Why would I load it into a message designed to move people? So what he talks about, um, for example, is how PSAs will um, spend a lot of time telling people how many people are behaving in a way that the PSA is trying to discourage. Um, so like so many people are, uh, not paying their taxes and we need to stop doing that. Um, and how that can actually have a boomerang effect because it's inherent in our being that, um, basically unconscious of it will hear that and say, oh, well, all these other people are doing that. So either... Um, I should be doing it too, or it can't be that bad because that many other people are doing it. Um, and um, he says it's because the message is that a lot of people just like you are doing this and it normalizes and legitimizes the behavior. So, um, you know, I, I took that to, to say that when even as uh, queer and LGBT people, where we don't fit into the standard model of what a relationship is supposed to look like or what our life is supposed to look like, there's still underlying this unconscious message that in order to normalize and legitimize my behavior, I should be doing what my neighbors are doing. And, um, you know, that, that I, I, I like, I took as important what he was saying about, um, people who are developing programs. So they were talking about creating pro-social behavior as like preventing people from um, stealing things and, you know, basically preventing people from breaking laws or driving badly and things like that. But what I was thinking was when you're, cre when you're trying to create a message that's designed to um, encourage a movement for lib LGBTQ liberation, like, how do we do that 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 doesn't 
you know, that doesn't have that boomerang effect? Well, that's a good question. How do we do that? I mean, even we're even we're speaking about assimilation. Does that, when people hear that, do they think, oh, okay, so, well, everyone's assimilating? I don't know. I mean, I came away with it as an open question because I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm all for thinking that nature isn't everything, and you know, we have the ability to do what in our work and think about like be conscious or try to remain conscious of the decisions we make and the actions we take. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting is when, when you were talking, I mean, I, I, like I said, I come from my, you know, my undergrad is sociology and that's how I, I spent a great deal of my time and he's speaking very sociological, sociologically, um, you know, and we're about LGBTQ psyche. And so when I hear kind of, you know, do what your neighbors do, I immediately think to the family system, you know, that do what your neighbors do could be considered kind of code for, you know, do what the family does, do what you've been taught, you know, do what mommy and daddy wants you to do, you know, and I think that's probably more accurately the first place psychologically that we're going to get the model for how to be a person. You know, um, no matter how dysfunctional and fat and, you know, addicted and alcoholic they may be, you know, we get our models for how we're going to deal with emotion, how we're going to be in relationship to other people, what roles there are to play and what roles we can play within that system. You know, I think that's kind of the, the beginnings of a lot of that. And so I think like, I think maybe it's it's really um, important to think about how we are different from the family. You know, LGBT people often will talk about feeling different from a very early age, and I think that that feeling is something to be cultivated. You know, how do we cultivate our difference? I know that's something that I'm trying to think and and feel a lot into is how how can I continue to differentiate myself? I know that I come from um I come from a lot of things, but one of the things I come from is, you know, a very toxic, heterosexist, abusive environment. And 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 that pervades my family system and that pervades my own psychology so differentiating myself more and more challenging bucking the family system um you know is is in my current life is a is also a symbol for continuing to try to differentiate myself psychologically from them you know those moments when i catch myself like oh i'm being my mother right now or you know, I'm I'm doing something, but it doesn't feel authentic to me. What the fuck is this about? Why am Why am I doing this? You know, why am I treating my husband this way, or why am I making these, you know, demands that we are a certain way? It's so I think like psychologically, the assimilation can begin with does begin with the family, and I suppose then that's where the importance of um, family of choice comes in and 
you know, making your neighbors, so to speak, not necessarily who you're living right next to, but your LGBT community and, uh, you know, other, other LGBTQ people who are doing their inner work. And I think that's a key thing you said, you know, doing the work because there are a great number of very heterosexist, very homophobic, very assimilationist gay people out there. Well, and like, you know, maybe that brings us to kind of your point and your question that you wanted to pose sort of about where should we be focusing? Where can we look? You know, what, what can we be moving towards? Um, and I guess I, I would just say that I would really encourage everyone, you know, um, to be looking at the ways that, that heterosexism and internalized homophobia pervade our lives, external and internal, and looking at that really deeply and how we're so we're defended around it and how that can um enable us disable us to just assimilate to what's around because it's not it's harder to combat you know than it is to just go with the flow so i guess i would say the call to action that that i would put out there is to really go inward because it's going to start within you. You know, look at the ways that that you're discontent. Look at the ways that you're just mimicking the heterosexism in your own life. You know, go inward and, you know, go back a little bit too and, and look at, you know, when did my queerness, when did my lesbian eros, when did my gayness come come out first and get slammed back down? You know, where where are those moments when we were different? And because along the way, we're going to learn to shut that off, you know, to not be different, to be the same. So I think it's only kind of by going back more and more and in the present, looking for the ways that you are different um, and being able to culti- cultivate that differentness. Because I think that's where new ideas, that's where creativity, that's where being able to um, create a life that is more authentically you, more authentically queer, um, will come from, you know, cause like you say, you're not necessarily going to get it unless you're in some odd, tiny little community, you know, um, which, you know, I'm fortunate to be around people that are working on these things, you know, so I get that influence, but it's not, I don't think it's readily available to everyone. That's why I say it's kind of, you got to take more of an inward focus, especially if you are isolated from, from these ideas and communities. So I wanted just briefly to um, comment for you on this um, interview I watched um, um, with Amber Hollabaugh, who's from Queers for economic justice and she was talking about she was talking about exactly this topic um which i thought was amazing and they they asked her you know 
what her thoughts on on same-sex marriage were and why that's not her focus. And she said, uh, being respectful of the extraordinary work that's happened within the last 35 years is not the same thing as it reflecting my values. I'm not sorry we can now enter the military, and I'm not sorry that we can now marry, but frankly, I come from a moment in time and a radical vision in time that never made marriage or the military my criteria of success. And I just thought she put that so brilliantly. And her answer, actually, to uh, what her focus is then, uh, or what the focus of queer liberation should be, um, was that it should be about the erotic and sexual freedom, which I thought was interesting. Um, and uh, when asked why, she said, the power of a political, div a political vision is, the deeply in is deeply engaged with the possibility of how you can live out the liberation that you seek, and part of that vision is about the erotic. It's not all right with me to not talk about it so I don't make people nervous. And um, no political movement can avoid the reality of a desire in its midst. Se sex may be private in the way that you make love, but it's not private in the context of the world we live in. So um, basically what I interpreted that to mean was that she's looking for a, a, a more sex-positive society and a society in which we have the freedom to... Um, have the sexual relationships we choose and that that doesn't necessarily have to mean that the, then we go and marry that person and have a white picket fence and children. Um, I thought it was an interesting opinion on, on where, where queer liberation should be looking rather than these kind of government sanctioned rights. Yeah. And I would, I would just also add that, you know, we need to be careful about um, um, making it too much about sexual acts, mm -hmm. you know, um, although that's very important. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think being, you know, gay is more than what you do in the bedroom. I think it has to do with a fundamental orientation of my psychology and my person. Um, how I see the world. Um, you you mentioned you know that that just who we decide to go to bed with or what we do sexually doesn't have to mean we you know jump into a marriage and a white picket fence. Um, and I I agree with that, but I would also say that we can't diminish the importance of who we're going to bed with and that we may want to make a life with that person. You know, I feel like it could be misconstrued in the sense that, oh, I can go to bed with whoever I want, but, you know, I don't have to identify in any way or, does that make sense? Mm, you know, like, um, I'm not entirely way, sure I'm it sounds you. almost like a, a fluid argument. Oh, an okay. Argument That's for not fluidity. what I Yeah. So I just wanted to, differentiate that a little bit yeah that's not what I meant um although I do believe sexual fluidity exists that's not what I meant what I meant was just that um it doesn't necessarily need to be uh a state sanctioned 
relationship. I agree. I agree. Uh, but I, I really liked what she said about how, um, uh, that the power of a political vision is deeply engaged with the possibility of how you can live out the liberation that you seek. Um, it's more than just a political ideology that you protest for. It's how are you living your life? Right. Because, because what, what good is the activism if you don't see a future in which that whatever you're fighting for actually happens? And what is it that you want that future to look like? I don't want that future to look like, um, you know, the beavers, the, the television shows of the fifties. Yeah. <laughs> the cleavers. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's maybe a good way of kind of wrapping up is to, um, put that out to anybody listening um, that you know what is the vision what is the vision for the future how how can you cultivate it in your own life and how what do you see for the future what do you hope to see that would be excellent I encourage that. So maybe it's, um, you know what? I like that idea. I would like people to give that some thought and maybe share their thoughts about it on our Facebook page. So find us on the LGBTQ psyche podcast, Facebook page and, uh, share your thoughts about what you think the future of LGBTQ liberation should look like. And if you feel a little bit more private about it, you can email us at LGBTQ Psyche Podcast at yahoo.com and download our episodes at LGBTQ Psyche Podcast.podbean.com. I think that was a good show, Morgan. I do too. I felt good about it. I was a little more meatier than, um, you know, we had points that we wanted to get into and. We spent a good amount of time on marriage, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's good. I think m- most of these topics, you know, will be um, more and more developed as we go on. I think a lot of our introductory episodes, we've probably thought more as an introduction, you know, things to be ongoingly talked about. I felt like um, it was more balanced, and I was a little more open. Uh, which is uh, which is always a challenge for me, but I, you know, it felt good. I'm glad I did it. I like it when you're open. Ah, thank you. Um, so our next episode will likely be focusing on the trauma of growing up gay and what that can kind of do to infants, children, and now us as adults. Um, and uh, we will be talking to Henry Campagna about his experience um, having a a gay day, a Dia del Gay, with his, almost nearly his entire family. I'm, I, there was like a hundred people at this Dia del Gay that he did as a project. And uh, so he'll be talking to us about how he got there, um, and a little bit about his experience in his own family and and the traumas there and how he's worked with that. So that should be really exciting. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. That was, I felt so privileged to be a part of that day. 
it was really moving. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Yes. So that's our next episode. Um, and check us, check out our website, um, lgbtqpsyche.wordpress.com for more links. Um, we can put up some links to the things we've talked about today and check us out there. Thank you.